the Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Listen to the exciting story of the American Community Schools of Athens. Check out what drives all the members of our international community of learners as we create the education of the future. Here's John Papadakis. Welcome to another episode of the Owlcast. When your personal goal as a school librarian is to make the library a multitasking hub for academically reliable and ethically conducted research, you need to have acquired a few very specific skills through your studies. Library and Information Sciences is the obvious one. Research specialist through doctoral studies is another. The classics and cultural studies might be helpful and being a polyglot wouldn't hurt either. Dr. Marco Crivellaro joined ACS Athens a little before the COVID pandemic struck hard face-to-face learning in schools. Operating through two lockdowns could have been an inopportune time in his career, especially when as a librarian you depend on physical presence of students in your library and the constant contact with books and volumes of manuscripts. But Following the school-wide path from physical to virtual, he created the ACS Athens Virtual Library with a comprehensive list of books and periodicals accessible in electronic formats. Our discussion with Dr. Crivellaro starts with the library, but expands to topics such as information versus knowledge, critical thinking skills of the reader and why it's important to know why you read what you read, We even invited his personal favorite authors for dinner. And yes, history is his favorite subject. Who would have thought? Someone walks into a library. And not any library, but a school library. So this someone might have come from a school with a library of its own, or might be coming from a school where there are no libraries available, and you can only access books in the local public library. This someone walks up to your office, which is in the entrance of the library, and asks you, how may you help me? How do you answer? Well, that would depend on the person I have in front, what their expectations are, uh, what their needs to be in a library are. So, first of all, I would talk to the person. I would uh, try to connect to that person, and if it's a school library, an academic level, every every case is different. It's it's one of the beautiful things that uh, you have when you work in in the academic field, specifically in high schools and middle schools. Every reader has different things in mind, have different tastes, and you have to try to connect them with. The material you have and you might end up finding out things that you didn't know in the process so it it i think it's important to start on a personal assessment of every situation so you're trying to connect with them yes dr crivellaro i am a parent who is visiting trying to decide whether this school is appropriate or challenging enough or just too much for my child how would you approach me as I step into the library? That's nice one. Um, well, first of all, it's always a matter of providing a 
a welcoming and engaging environment for everybody, not not just like uh, like parents. Parents obviously are the the first uh, encounter that kids have with school because they decide to send the kids here. So with kindness, with courtesy, with uh, with enthusiasm, it's uh, which is basically how we welcome anybody in the library, not just parents. So I believe that uh, we have a very wide collection of books. We have the uh, apparently the largest collection of non-Greek books in the country. It amounts to over 40,000 uh, documents at the moment. And sometimes it can be intimidating, because especially if someone comes from an environment where the school didn't have as many books or didn't have books at all, and they were relying on the public libraries. I think it's important to make everyone feel welcome and engage and entertain as well. That's it, pretty much. It's so it's a way of engaging the students, and this is what we're talking to the parents about. Yes, well, I found that uh, engaging students when it comes to their presence in the library can be a little tricky because most might come here for academic endeavors. So they need to work on a very challenging, very demanding schedule they have at any level in the school. But I found that once you can pass the first barrier of academic requirements, they become uh, more easily engaged, more enthusiastic in sharing what they are doing and in making me understand how I can help them. Also, the library has a unique position in, in the school because it's um, not, not just the library, the studios as well. But speaking from my personal experience, the library is the only space that serves everyone regardless of their assignments in school. It serves teachers for both the academy and the middle school and so the students. And it serves also non-instructional staff. So we face every day on a whole variety of patrons with different needs and expectations. And they come here, our patrons, at any time of the day, before school, during school time, during uh, lunch break, after school, until 5.30. So there are a whole set of different dynamics that play and when, when they are here. And most of the times, actually, don't even come here because they have to for an assignment. They come here because it's a nice environment because it most of the times is quiet because my colleague and I try to provide a certain atmosphere and and sometimes they come here just because they're stressed and they want to let the steam off so i remember that uh, last year there was this middle schooler and that she was very tense because uh, she was having a math test that day and she came to the library half an hour earlier just to study and I was talking to her and we ended up talking about some funny books and actually she la she left with a laugh and she was very happy and she she wasn't worrying about the, the test at all. That's the kind of atmosphere I like to create. Uh, you hold a Master of Library and Information Science uh, yeah. and this is your latest one because the one, yeah. <laughs> you seem to collect <laughs> degrees. Uh, what yeah. has been your trip? through the books of your life as you arrive Ooh. to the role as the ACS Athens librarian? I've always wanted to work with books, actually. Either I have worked with books as, as a librarian now, I have done uh, work as a librarian in the past, I've been a curator, 
I have been an intermediary for uh, bibliographical acquisitions. Uh, I'm a teacher, obviously. I'm a reader. So books have always been a fundamental part in my life. Since I started collecting books when I was 11, 12. So I have been buying books for myself. For and your past. collection is how many volumes? Uh, around have you have you actually catalogued I, them? Uh, no, I, I tried to catalog in the past, but it uh, too, too much time. It's, too much. Uh, time. I mean, I can do it for school because that's part of my job, and I have colleagues helping me with that. But uh, no, at the moment I stopped counting a few years ago when I left Italy around ten years ago. Uh, but I believe that now they are in the twenty thousand units strong, scattered in four different countries at the moment. So because every time I move, books seem to accumulate endlessly. So which is sometimes a, a cause of concern, because when we moved, it's always um, a lot of stuff to, to, to carry about. It started when I was a kid, I was very much into reading, I fell in love with Greek myths and uh, Greek literature very early, around, around 12. I was lucky enough to understand early what I wanted to do and how to do it. And I had uh, the chance and the opportunities to do it. So that was very, uh, very important. Then I went to a high school that heavily focused on uh, classical education. So we had ancient Greek in high school. We had Latin in high school. Then I decided to study classics in, in the university because I've always wanted to teach ancient Greek and Latin. And I got a BA in classics, then a PhD in classics. And that's a lot of books involved, obviously, because you always have to compare everything in three or four languages because uh, the classics academic field is a very international one. You need to compare different editions of the, of the same book. So you need to master at least three languages. And that gives you access to more books. And, and pretty much I never stop. But uh, I often joke saying that I never got out of school. So basically I enter school at six. And you're and, still in the school. And I'm still in school. And I'm, now I'm paid to be a, uh, for being at school. So that's, that's pretty nice. I'm basically paid to read and help people read. So that's, uh, that's interesting. You are listening to The Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Information is different than knowledge. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you agree. Absolutely, yes. Well, our era is and will be for the foreseeable future that of abundant access to anything we want to know, at least for the developed and developing world. We can find everything we're looking for. Uh, it seems that Internet has leveled the playing field. Mm -hmm. But has it? Really? How do you see the distinction between information and knowledge? And does having access to information make you knowledgeable of the subject you're looking into? Okay, it's a very wide, very interesting question. And which... Let's get a more concise yeah, version. Let's, let's have <laughs> but a... But I really am interested to see how yeah. you're looking into okay. that. We can, I believe that we can safely say that the current generation, so everyone literated in information technology who knows how to use a computer or a mobile device, 
has access to more knowledge and more information than any other gen generation in the history of humankind. That's undeniable. We have literally world knowledge in any possible field, literally at our fingertips. That doesn't make us more knowledgeable. Uh, as you said, information is one thing, knowledge is another one. Knowledge is being able to critically assess a certain amount of information and understand whether it is reliable or not and how to use it. Everyone can be informed. Everyone can open it at, at any moment, Google or any other search engine or portal and have instant information about what the temperature was yesterday in Lima. Uh, that's undeniable. That's information. That's information. Knowing why that is relevant, how I can use it, and how using that information is profitable is knowledge. Knowing how that information is collected and how, whether I can trust that piece of information or not, that is knowledge. And that is a critical skill that needs uh, time to be acquired. As you said, for the time being, that's the, that's the situation. I don't believe that actually uh, the current technological development and the internet and the digital revolution, so to say, have leveled the field per se. They have equalized the possibility of accessing the information. That's, that's for sure. The moment you have a device connected to the internet that can cost even 50 euros, you can have access to that kind of information. What hasn't been leveled is the ability of understanding and using that information. It's again, it's a very wide source of reflection, but in a nutshell, that's the way it is now. I remember that a few years before uh, passing, Umberto Eco caused a stir in, in Italy uh, because of something he wrote on a newspaper. He said that internet gave right of speaking to the imbeciles. And it was obviously controversial as a statement. He wasn't wrong though. It, uh, everyone can say anything they want on Wikipedia, for example. Uh, now, less often than, than before because there are actually moderators. reviewing. Yes, there are some sort of reviewing committees. There are moderators. But still, some loopholes can give that kind of, of space. And we can see these results from the fake media out there. I was getting the there, yes, exactly. Uh, if I want to say that a vaccine is bad, for example, all I have to do is type a few words on any social media and the information will be, will be there. If someone doesn't have the critical skills to analyze what I just said, to compare the data, to verify whether uh, what I said is reliable or not, they will believe me. Um, most people don't know that certain things needed to be verified. They, they will just accept it because it's written there. So in that case, we can say that Echo somehow had, had a good point, actually. Everyone, even the worst, least informed person in the world can actually spread fake news, can spread misleading data. Uh, you mentioned Google. You didn't mm -hmm. say search engine from the beginning. You said no. when you Google. Oh. It's a verb now. 
Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> in 2002, mm -hmm. uh, Google began to scan millions of books in sure. an effort to create a giant huh. global library sure. containing every book in existence. Not only this, but they claimed that they had an even greater purpose to create a higher form of intelligence. That's what they said. Yeah. Working with the world's most prestigious libraries, Google has changed the boundaries of copyright in the name of free access to anyone, anywhere. Mm -hmm. What do you think is wrong with this picture? Well, first of all, intellectual property has always been a tricky, slippery slope. On one side, I see the advantages of such uh, an operation because I can have instant access to one of the widest uh, library collections in the world. That's, that's undeniable. I have Google Books on my tablet and I use that to read the books I own, the e-books I own, for example. And that gives you access to a whole wide variety of, of works. On the other hand, uh, if I am uh, the owner of the intellectual rights to a certain piece of art, that might cause a problem for me because I have no longer control on what I have wrote. Anyone can access my content, whether they, are, they have the right to do so or not, and they can alter the content I produce. And uh, it might seem a small matter because, okay, they will change a word here or there. They might paraphrase, not say exactly the things I wrote. But for example, Europe has a history of insanely bloody conflicts for the way, for example, prayers were recited on whether to say a word or not during a religious service. Wars were fought for hundreds of years, for example. So that's no longer the case, but uh, words are important in that sense. Um, in Latin, they used to say that verba lapides Words are stones. They can hurt if thrown. So every word is important. And an operation like the complete digitalization of intellectual properties in that way can have serious impacts on, on the integrity of an intellectual work. It's the moment an information is out there is for everyone to grab and it can be altered very easily. It could be a serious issue in, in the long term. Mm -hmm. And it could also potentially affect intellectual owners economically because the reproduction of the test is impacted in I'm that way. I'm pretty sure that this discussion is going to continue in the years to come because oh, it, it looks like the digitization of content in general, not just yeah. books, is going to continue, it's going to increase. Um, it's but constantly revised, yeah. Coming back to our operation here, your operation here mm -hmm. as the librarian, what is your philosophy of guiding students or teachers that come to you for assistance? What is the biggest challenge for someone not knowing what they're looking for? The biggest challenge is to make them understand what they need. I am collaborating with teachers and helping students on a daily basis. We have been having for the past year a huge effort in the developing the action research program, and that involves constant research and assessing from the teachers. And I'm lucky to be able to help them, and I'm lucky to have colleagues that come uh, to me for help or 
for developing their uh, their material better or deeper. But sometimes the level of research from teachers and students is so deep that they don't know where to start, especially um, students, of course, because for, for some of them, school is the first time they do research, obviously. So I would say that, again, is helping them understand what they need first and then how to look for it. That is something that we can say it's universally needed. The biggest thing after you pass at the first stage of understanding what I need is where to find it. Research skills. Research skills, basically, yes. It, it always goes to the ability of using critical thinking and sourcing the right material. I was actually discussing this specific issue with a friend and colleague from Italy, and we were comparing different experiences that uh, this friend uh, works in a university library in, in Italy in, the, in a technological and scientific department. And he was telling me that students just go up to the library and they type on Google a few words and they take the, the first things that show up. And I remember that in the past I had responses when I was collaborating with the writing studio to examine some sources and I told the student, I'm sorry, but you can't use this source because this is not an academic source for this kind of work. You can't use this. And the student very kindly uh, told me, but, but sir, why, why can't I use this? Well, first of all, it's, it's not a scholarly paper. It's a website. And the student replied, yeah, but it's not, it's not a .com site. Okay, but that's not the point. I mean, it could be .net or .info for all I care, but it doesn't make it more more reliable. That's mm. important for them to, to it's understand. It's important, yes, because I was actually having a discussion uh, discussion with my wife this morning, who's not an academic, she's an artist. We were discussing about the fact that not many people know how much effort and time and steps are required to publish a scholarly article. Uh, because uh, in order to publish a scholarly source, you need to pass a series of steps that are heavily scrutinized and very specifically designed. You need to have a peer review committee. You need to have an editorial committee that scrutinizes every single sentence you wrote to certify that what you said is reliable. Most people don't know that. That's a big issue. And that's your, that's your role, in a sense. Yes, in that's school. part of my... Well, I'm sure that yeah. as a librarian, many books go through your desk on a daily basis. Uh, and I yeah. am also sure that you wouldn't be doing this job if you weren't an avid reader. <laughs> yeah. So yes. as you said, you have a big library of your own. Uh, yeah. Can you think of a book you read recently that made you go back and read it again or caused you to have an epiphany of some sort? Uh, a book that you would definitely recommend? I can name a few, actually. Um, okay, I believe that if the you first one that comes to your mind, "Shadow of the Wind," by Carlos Ruiz Zafón. He's a um, Spanish author. He passed away this year, actually, unexpectedly. So everyone was very shocked. He wrote a tetralogy, so a series of four books about Barcelona. Besides the Nobel Prize, he has won pretty much any literary award any writer can dream of of winning. And briefly what it is about? I would spoil a lot if I okay, tell okay. Uh, what, what it was about. So the uh, title of the book is? Shadow of the Wind. By? The Shadow of the, Carlos Ruiz Zafón. We have a copy at, at the We library. do have a copy. Yes. We, I, I would have, uh, yes. You are assigned. 
mm-hmm. on an empty library. Okay. Could you think of the first five books okay. that you would start the library collection? It could be okay. anything that you that you want. What are those five books? Okay, well, one volume edition of Iliad and Odyssey. It's something that every person in, in the world should read. Shadow of the Wind, I would put that one as well. I would say The Divine Comedy, Dante, probably Yukio Mishima, anything from Yukio Mishima, let's say Confession of a Mask. That's his first published work, still one of his uh, most readable and probably best pieces of work as well. And I would say an art book about uh, Renaissance in Europe. You have an opportunity to invite three authors for dinner. Okay. Who would they be and what would you discuss with them? Okay, Carlos Rizafon would be an, ap- an option, but I would go with Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, first because he was. I should have included it uh, him in the in the previous list, but okay, honorary mention. Uh, we and the first well. subject that you're going to talk with them, if when you meet with someone of that kind of intellect and artistic ability, I would just be happy to let him talk about whatever he wants. I don't care. It's just uh, Mr. Marcus. I'm very it's a free honored. subject. Yes, just tell me whatever you want. I'm happy. I don't care. Whatever comes uh, to your mind. Yes, whatever whatever comes is is fine. I I met a few Nobel prizes in my life. One of them was the Italian uh, Nobel Prize winner for for literature, um, Dario Fo. We met a few times actually. We we collaborated once. And I remember that the first time we had a meal shared together, he went on and on uh, how great piadina is. Piadina is this kind of Italian bread very similar to pita or tortillas. And he kept for hours talking about piadina. He's a Nobel Prize winner. So, yeah, you you, you have to th- I'm, think. I'm pretty sure it was an interesting discussion, though. I had. Yeah, yeah, it was. I had. <laughs> Since I, you still remember it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I met Umberto Eco once. He was a friend of my former boss when I was working in Italy. And Umberto was a terrific host when he had a whole collection of very salacious jokes that he played with different accents and voices. So, but that's, and he spoke very little about books, but a lot of jokes and food. Apparently that's, that's a recurring theme. Artists love to talk about food. I am reading uh, a book now that's, it's a trilogy called All Souls Trilogy. It's, uh, mm, you would, call it academic horror series. I'm not going to say anything about it, but it has academics and vampires and witches. And the first book is The Discovery of Witches. And the author is Deborah Harkness, which who is a terrific writer and also an academics. She has a PhD and a few masters as well. And she's a Yale scholar as well. So she has a very solid background and she's able to um, to write compelling, beautiful, entertaining stories. Uh, so I would like to have dinner with her and talk to her, and I would start asking her how she feels about Twilight, uh, because it's it's a very popular series, which I don't love per se, but... Uh, but you would like to know her opinion. Yes, because I, I can see her... Co- I mean, when I read the book, I can read her content towards the series. So just to spice things up, I would like to ask her. And another one, I would go with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is one of my favorite author ever. 
He has been able to write masterpieces in novels and comic books. Uh, Netflix is going to have a series based on his comic book, The Sandman, next year. I think I, I know it's in the working. I think it's going to be available next year. He is one of the most influential writers in English of the current generation. He has incredibly high literary value joined with entertainment skills that are very rare to find in a writer. So, and uh, I would probably ask him to talk about Matilda because Matilda is one of his most popular books. It's a book very well loved from any reader, very suitable for kids starting even with elementary school. And it's a deep, beautifully written book about love for books and how literature and reading can transform positively your life. I'm pretty sure we're going to be talking about books again. Uh, My pleasure. But closing down this discussion, I have seven questions for you. And these questions are to be answered quickly. Don't think too much of them. Okay. Okay. So sure. popular science or science fiction? Science fiction. Science fiction or history? History. History or biographies? History. History or art books? History. Renaissance or the classical Greek age? Renaissance. Victorian age or the age of Venice? Victorian age. And finally, Shakespeare or Cervantes? Cervantes. Dr. Crivellaro, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the Owlcast, the official podcast of ACS Athens. Make sure you subscribe to the Owlcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This has been a production of the ACS Athens Media Studio.